Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV Radio in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the public affairs show where we try to explain Vermont and the nation to our listeners and understand our politics, culture, democracy in ways that we have not yet figured out. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic. And welcome to everyone listening on the radio and online at WDEVradio.com and free on the WDEV Radio app. Today is July 5th, 2023, the day after Independence Day. We'll talk about July 4th a bit and then talk to two guests who think a lot about where the country's going, where Vermont is going, and how we'll get there. Melissa Bounty is the executive director of the Central Vermont Economic Development Corporation, and she will join us in a couple of minutes to discuss the economy, how we grow it, and how or how we not grow it. And Dave Chapman, an East Thetford farmer uh, who grows tomatoes in beautiful glass greenhouses, will join us to discuss organic farming and the movement that he started called Real Organic. And... Uh, Lest you think that's easy, that's a political fight about whether or the term organic should cover uh, plants and vegetables not grown in the soil, i.e. hydroponic. So think of hydroponic tomatoes. Should they be, that are grown in water, should they be labeled organic? It's a huge fight, and Dave Chapman is uh, leading that fight, and uh, he will be joining us at 10 o'clock. As always, we welcome your calls. The number to call is 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. And as Brady Farkas always says, streaming live on the WDEV radio app. All that's coming up. But first, on July 4th, 1776, the Second Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence, declaring, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For all the fact that the congressman got, a, got around the sticky little problem of black and indigenous slavery by defining men as white men, and for all that it never crossed their minds that women might also have rights, the Declaration of Independence was a radical document in a world dominated, dominated by a small class of wealthy men. A group of legislators on the edge of the wilderness declared that no man was better than any other. We got it wrong along the way a lot of times. What the founders declared self-evident was not so clear 87 years later when southern white men went to war to reshape America into a nation in which African Americans, indigenous Americans, Chinese, Irish, and others were locked into a lower status than whites. And in that era, equality was not self-evident. But then Abraham Lincoln happened. And Ulysses Grant happened, and Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Harriet Beecher Stowe happened. And then we heard these words from Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. 
1863, Lincoln explained, the Civil War was testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. It did endure, of course. The Confederate rebellion failed. The United States endured, and Americans began to expand the idea that all people are created equal to include black men, men of color, and eventually women. We are now, once again, depending on your political views, facing a kind of rebellion against our founding principle, as a few people seek to reshape America into a nation in which certain people are better than others from all sides of the political spectrum. But the men who signed the Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1776, pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to defend the idea of human equality. Ever since then, Americans have sacrificed their own fortunes, honor, and even their lives for that principle. Lincoln reminded Civil War Americans of those sacrifices when he urged the people of his era to, quote, take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. I can't think of a better description for this show. We will be right back. We're back. And our guest is Melissa Bounty. She is the executive director of the Central Vermont Economic Development Corporation. Her job is to recruit new businesses to come here and then help them when they get here. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. So what's the mission of CVEDC? Our mission is to attract and retain good wage-paying jobs for the citizens of central Vermont. And how do you do that? (laughs) A bunch of ways. Um, Mostly we support businesses um, when they're in a transition. So if they're growing, if they're thinking of moving, or if they want to apply for a state or federal program to help them with something, then we they contact us and we help them with that. Got it. And so you're an expert on tax credits and and uh, SBA loans, small business administration loans, and Lord knows what else there is at state government to to assist businesses who are want to come here or who are already here. I'm here to help. I'm not an expert yet, but I'm working on it. Right, right. Um, so here's a macro question. Let's talk about the economy now. We keep hearing that there's a recession coming. I've been hearing that for 18 months. Yet uh, there's still job growth. There's still wage growth. Inflation is down. Um, and it seems to be kind of chugging along. What's your view of the economy right now? Well, the data points that I get are just from the region. So I pay attention to the global and national economic news, but I think about our region and interpret that as to how I decide if if I think things are going well or not. And I think here in the region, we are rebounding from covid I'm meeting business owners who started their business during COVID and are finally starting to see some traction. 
and I talk with business owners who had really strong 2022 years and are seeing even more growth in 2023. So those are the data points that I look at here in the region. Let's talk about COVID for a second. How did that affect us from your point of view? So I joined CVEDC midway through the pandemic. Lovely. (laughs) There are 11 other organizations like mine covering the whole state. And I think people's awareness of the RDCs as a collective was really magnified during COVID because suddenly a restaurant or another small business that might never have heard of their RDC could reach out and get help with a PPP or an idle application, things that they might never have needed to do before. So we became um, on the radar for a lot of businesses. And now I have a much larger client list than I think CVDC had in 2019. So tell us about that client list. Who, what do you mean by that? Who's on it? (laughs) Give us the inside story. Um, I work with a lot of small business owners um, and the, the key employers and the larger businesses in the region too. But it's, it's almost the same task list when you're working with a very small business or a very big business. You're doing really similar work. So, um, I work with typically a business that's out of the startup phase. So if they're a year or older and they have questions about growth or moving or um, accessing capital, I'll step in. So I have a lot of small businesses in all different sectors that I work with. And with regard to access, accessing capital, how do you go about doing that? How do you help businesses access capital? So it's not walking down the street to the Northfield Savings Bank. <laughs> Sometimes, Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Yep, yep. So the first question I always ask, and this question can take a couple months to answer sometimes, is how much money are you looking for and what do you want to do with that money? And then if we can answer those questions, build a budget and understand what the business wants to do, then we can identify are there state or federal programs that might help out with this um project or this growth. And if there aren't, then we look to other lending or um, other ways of accessing money. We're typically building a business plan if the business owner hasn't done that specifically for the purpose of this is a plan for the project and for the growth ahead of us. And how could a lender or another financer come in and um and feel that this plan is valid and that they want to invest. And I noticed that with the the development of Hula up in Chittenden County, and I know the folks at Fresh Tracks Capital, the the venture capital funding uh, uh, ecosystem, uh, Dave Bradbury, if he's listening, would be angry at me for not mentioning the Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, VSET, that ecosystem is growing, and there's more capital coming into Vermont. That's as much as I know, but fill in the gaps. It's another indicator that the economy, at least for our region, is thriving or growing, is that there is a lot of venture capital activity. One of the um, ways that I work with venture capital and think about venture capital is really targeting communities that haven't always had access to venture capital. So all three of the organizations that you named are great. 
And we're also looking for pathways to link venture capital and philanthropy with groups and communities that haven't always had access to that. Mm. So that could be new um, new Americans or new Vermonters, people in the BIPOC community mm-hmm. um, who haven't always been the audience that the venture capital has been able to capture. Right. Uh, what 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 else is on your list? I noticed that my favorite restaurant in the world, Hen of the Wood, has now reopened around the corner from this radio station. Uh, it looks great through the window. I haven't been there, but um, you know, and th- they got the, the fire alarm went off, and and the sprinklers went on overnight, and they had to close for a month to to fix it all. I mean, what a disastrous headache. Did you were you aware of that? Did you get called in on that? They they don't call me when the fire alarms go off. Right. I'm probably glad that that's not on my list of tasks, but definitely when a business is moving or thinking of moving, that's something that we step in and help with. Um I've been working with um a group who is interested in opening um a new fitness facility in the area and we've been going and touring spaces and um I think we I think we're zeroing in on something. So that's always a really exciting part when a either a business wants to move to the area or a new business with a lot of thought and care is going to launch and they need a big space. Right. And how does your job balance between um recruiting and uh, managing uh, and supporting businesses that are already here. How does that break down? I wouldn't say that we spend a lot of time right now actively recruiting, so I don't take out the Colorado phone book and start calling people up, asking them to come here. But CVEDC has existed since the 1970s, and I have a great network, an old network, and a new and changing network of contacts. So I will hear from commercial realtors that a business is asking, or I'll hear from another partner that I work with, the bank, Northfield Savings Bank or the SBA, and then I'll pick up and start working with those those individuals who have the business that's moving or thinking of coming here, show them around and answer their questions, show them what the area is like. Yeah. Um, that's only probably 10% of my work. 90% is helping the businesses that are here. That are here. Yep. We're going to take a call. Fred from Newberry is on the line. Fred, what is your economic development question? Uh, I do have one, I guess. It's based on the cost of living in uh, Vermont. Vermont taxes everybody and everything. There's so many taxes in Vermont, it's hard to even count them. So if they reduce the taxes in Vermont, the income would increase, and you'd have more business wanting to come here, and the state would probably make more revenue. Now, let's just say that there was a company that wanted to come to uh, New England, and it was between Vermont and New Hampshire. You're going to have a small business of, say, 50 people going to have a job, and uh, they're going to pick the, the, the uh, Upper Valley. Which state would they pick? Would they pick Vermont or would they pick New Hampshire? My bet is they pick New Hampshire because the taxes are more reasonable in New Hampshire. And if you live in New Hampshire in the Upper Valley, 
you get the best view of Vermont. So it's a win-win. Yeah, but Fred, but you have to live in New Hampshire. That's the problem. That's right. Yeah, it's no problem living in New Hampshire. I said the taxes are going to be less in New Hampshire. And so things are going to be a lot better. Well, that, that of course, uh, presupposes that you spend your life uh, concerned only about taxes because uh, there's a lot to attract us all to Vermont over New Hampshire. Uh, Melissa, what's your answer? It, so that's a really good question and scenario, and um, you're exactly right. When a business is deciding where to go, they can just do the dollars and cents and, and really figure out. Um, and if they call me, they'll have a more accurate picture of those dollars and cents. And I've I've worked with um, accounting groups like Ernst & Young that are helping people make this big decision about what's going to cost more, but there's always quality of life questions. And um, it can be something like, I want a stronger art scene for myself and my employees, or I want um, Mahiran's grocery store. Or I want whatever thing it is about central Vermont that draws people here or drew them here in the first place to consider it. Those considerations are going to stay, even if you're coming up with a different um a different picture financially in a different state, you do have to make the decision from multiple points of view, not just the exact cost. But it is, it's tough. It's tough to make that decision. It's, uh, it's my, my children are here visiting for a July 4th weekend and, um, and they talk about this all the time. I, there is no place on earth that they enjoy coming back to more. Uh, now Fred raises a good point, right? They're not here living and they're not here working. Right. Uh, they're in New York, they're in California, and they're in Washington, D.C. They're yep. in the big cities. Um, but there is something about Vermont beyond taxes and electricity rates, et cetera, et cetera, that just sets it apart. And I'm not sure we've defined it. But uh, now, if you're a CEO who has to look at the bottom line, that's a different uh question, but boy, there is still something about this state that makes people want to live here. And I think when people do make the decision to come here and live here and stay here, the CEO will look at that. If they have, if they're a company of 10 and they recruit those 10 people over a few years and those people all own homes and their children are in the schools here and they're enjoying life in Vermont, then they have 10 great people who are enjoying their lives. And that, that was my experience. I've been here since I was 17, and I, I had a first career in book publishing and now this career in economic development, and I've been able to work here since I was young and stay here. My sisters both live in cities, so yeah. I understand that scenario. Yeah. They want to come visit you. They come visit me all the time. They're on their way right now. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get let's get back to Fred's question uh, in the couple of minutes we have before the – break, and that is um, there's a tension out there between what Fred raised. Our taxes are too high. The wealthier who pay all the taxes are going to move to Florida. If we cut taxes, you're going to have, there's going to be more wealth created, uh, et cetera, et cetera, versus a huge portion of the Vermont legislature, which says we need to spend taxpayer dollars on the things that will attract and keep people here, child care, 
paid family leave, universal school meals, and all the things that they just passed, some climate change, some of which the governor vetoed, they overrode his vetoes, etc. Where do you come, where do you fit in that argument? You know, the liberals tell me the rich people are not moving to Florida. There's no evidence that says that's true. And the conservatives say to me, oh, of course it's true. And nobody ever gives me the document that says it, whether it's true or not. Where do you sit on that spectrum? So I think I like to talk with um, Kevin Chu, who runs the Vermont Futures Project. Yeah, right. The data man. One of the things he taught me is nothing is fixed. Whatever happens in the future, we have some role in it, some control in it. And so I like to think that the work that I do helps shape a better Vermont and that it is possible that some of the things we're worried about possibly happening with terminal industries or an aging population, there are ways to improve on that. Yeah. But are people, uh, are people leaving Vermont because of the high taxes? I haven't experienced anyone saying to me that I've left Vermont because of high taxes. There are, there's been so much transformation during COVID in how people think about work. And there's been a lot of different reasons why people have moved around and even come here because of the flexibility of work. Oh, you just raised the big (laughs) issue. Okay. So we're going to get to that. The future of work, how the pandemic has changed it, but just give us the headline. I mean, I, I was listening to a podcast just the other day, and somebody said, "Oh, it's Kai Rizdal of uh, of, of Marketplace." Um, he said, "Everything's changed. COVID changed everything." Um, you know, he was doing the podcast from his shed out from behind his house in L.A. Uh, have you seen this change? Definitely. Really? Definitely. Say more about that. So this is a roundtable conversation that happens every time I have a group of uh, business owners and business leaders at a table is how are you handling what we assume is your staff's insistence that they be allowed to work from home? And some industries, it's just not possible. I work with the granite industry a lot. There's not a lot of CNC routers going off to people's houses so they can do at-home granite work. But... Um, for for jobs where there is the possibility to work from home, I think there's an expectation that um, that people be allowed to work from home if it's reasonable. Boy, that is a huge, huge change. People don't want to go back to the office. Um, I we I know of a firm in Montpelier who has a lot of space downtown. They've got uh, thirty plus employees. Uh, they're not, they haven't gone back. Um, and the workers don't want to go back. Uh, wh- what, what does that mean for the business, the landlord, uh, who suddenly has open commercial space? What's that doing to the central Vermont economy? Well, it keeps me busy. Yeah. As well as, um, my counterpart in Montpelier, Josh Jerome, who handles economic development just for the municipality. But these are conversations we have all the time. Um, how do we take commercial space that's underused and find a new purpose for it? Can it be a child care center? Can it be housing? Can it speak to some of these other needs that are so urgent for the space? And 
can uh, decrease in rent costs help an employer respond to some of the other challenges that come up? I just did my budget and I had to create a new line item for digital subscriptions. That was a pretty significant Zoom and all those things. And uh, we didn't have that in our budget before. Right. We all had to learn Zoom, uh, Microsoft Teams, and Google Meet. Yes. Right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I've had to learn all those. Yep. And yeah. pay for them. I mean, yeah. it's not a huge cost, but we have to shift around our prioritization. Um, the RDCs ran a technic three rounds. We're about to launch the third of technical assistance support for businesses responding to COVID. So that could be helping with a website. Um, a lot of businesses didn't use websites before COVID and they realized that they had to have, even if they were a farmer's market pop-up or if they had a bricks and mortar, they had to have a strong digital space too. Um, I don't think that we've even scratched the surface of the new work. So the pandemic happened, the supply chain went broke, <laughs> broke, uh, and people were stuck in their homes, and everybody thought they were going to die. We were, we were. I remember uh, cleaning our groceries with bleach wipes with bleach wipes <laughs> yep. on the kitchen counter. Yep. Uh, we seem to have leveled off and taken a more rational approach to things as we've learned more. But this future of work, uh, there's a, we did a, we did a, uh, a show last week with uh, a reporter from seven days who wrote about third spaces, meaning, mm -hmm. okay, you've been stuck in your home working and you really don't like that. Uh, you're not going, you don't want to commute an hour to the office from St. Albans to Burlington or Montpelier. Uh, you need a third space to go to connect with friends, mm -hmm. to create community, mm -hmm. uh, to to be something other than just your work and your personal life. Uh, and you got to get out of the house. Yep. Um, I thought that was interesting. It, it, maybe we're going to see those third spaces pop up. They were co-working spaces, mm -hmm. and I it, maybe those will expand. I don't know, but I think the future of work is going to show itself in lots of different ways. Yeah, I think we've spent some time of COVID being very reactive as we had to be, and now it's time to be a little bit more constructive and creative and think about the resources we have and what we've learned and what we can do going forward. Okay, you have to answer a question for me, okay. which I don't understand. Governor Scott says there's 500 job openings in state government. Okay, that's that's data point number one. Okay. Number two, there's job openings everywhere. There's signs and windows from McDonald's all the way up the line. Um, nobody seems to be filling these jobs. And my question to you is, I understand that people got COVID loans and um, child tax credits and other things during the pandemic, but that ended. Are, are all these people sitting on their couches watching television all day? Where are all these workers? Well, I do get a special window because my husband happens to work for Department of Labor. So ah, I ah. I think I get a clear assessment of 
the couch sitting. I don't think it's any higher than any other time. I don't think people are existing off the government in a special way right now today. But I do think there's a reorganization of labor that's happening. And that's where we have to be creative as employers and as people that guide and lead employers. One of the things that I do that's new post-COVID is help employers write good job descriptions and good job postings and help them get those postings out there. It, a, a change along with the Zoom is the use of Indeed has changed a lot. It costs like like $500 to run a successful Indeed campaign for a candidate now. A business with 200 job openings can't possibly run those posts successfully at that cost for all their roles. And a small company also can't take on that burden. So we have to get creative about recruiting. What's Yeah, I, I having run job searches myself, it is, um, it's a science, but success comes in the art of man using your Rolodex and your connections and your relationships. Uh, and in Vermont, uh, we, I, we just had an organization I'm part of. We hired somebody re- a year ago and the reason she wanted the job was because she wanted to live here. Yep. I mean, that was the back to Fred's question. It ain't about taxes for her. It was about, I've wanted to live in Vermont for the last 25 years and now I've got my chance. And a lot, if, if someone does live in the area, a lot of people want to work with a specific company and that's something to harness too. When someone, I, I just hired two people recently and I think both of them came in wanting to work with me at CBDC, which is very flattering and also you have to take advantage of that. So there's some great employers in central Vermont, and I think people are aware of that, and those employers just need to get their message out, like, you are the right person for for this job, and if you want to be here, we want you here. My son from uh, New York City, we were driving down to Northfield uh, the other day, and I looked to the left, and I said, you know, that's darn tough socks. And he that's said, who I was thinking of when I was saying that. He said, oh, my God, that's <laughs> yep. darn tough yep. socks. And I'm like, yeah, and it's a great place to work. It is a great place um, to work. Yep. Let's do this. Let's do an exercise. Name the top five employers in this state, in, in, sorry, in central Vermont by number of employees. Darn Tough is one of them. Really? National Life. National Life, of course. The state yeah. is, I think, the largest yeah. central um, Vermont Medical Center. Yeah. And um, another large one that people don't often see is um, Central Vermont Home Health and Hospice. Oh, is yeah. a large one. So that they're not, um, the workers are not all in one place. They're going out to different um, locations. But as a group, they're a larger employer, too. So... All of those. Um, How's the granite industry doing? The granite industry is strong and growing also. And as a, as a collective, they would also be a, a massive employer for the right. area. And those people can't work at home. No. <laughs> and when I speak with the granite industry, they, for the most part, because they like the community of their workplace the way that 
it is, they have not sent certain positions home. Everybody is still there, even if they're doing administrative work. And that means Swenson Granite. Is that still a thing? Is Rock of Ages part of Swenson Granite? Is that how it works? Swenson Granite still exists as a standalone, but Rock of Ages is now part of Polycore. Polycore. Yep. Okay. Uh, and then there's the cool places. Not that those other places aren't cool. Uh, I mean, Bar Hill, Caledonia Spirits. Yep. You know, my kids visiting, that's where they want to go. It's fabulous. Um, out in Waitsfield, we have Lawson's Finest Liquid. Yeah. We just hired a new CEO. I saw that. Um, became a B Corp. So yep. lots of exciting changes. Um, and we, I just ran a, um, they call it an ARPA tour with a lot of the state, um, the governor's delegation to see what's going on in the region. So we visited Lawson's, we visited Choose Co., who's my former employer, book publisher in Waitsfield, um, Neck of the Woods, a child care center in Waitsfield, and saw what was going on. And every stop on that tour was just a lovely um, experience with the different businesses in the region. And there's this new uh, brewery, mountain biking in Waitsfield, uh, I'm blanking on the name. Is it's, it Mad it, Bush? Is Mad that the Bush. name of it? Mad yeah. Bush. It's yeah. at the base of a waterfall. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. It's uh, <laughs> it's one of the founders of Skinny Pig. Johnny Adler. Johnny Adler. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, I thought that I read about that, and I thought, oh, now that is really. It's exciting. I live in Waitsfield, so the Uh idea of a new breakfast, lunch, and dinner place is pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can only go to Stone Hearth Pizza so many times. What's it called? American Flatbread? Well, Flatbread, Or Blue Stone. Blue Stone. (laughs) I I go to Blue Stone a lot. (laughs) I'm a Flatbread flatbread, uh, fan. Yep. I'm a a fan of everything that will feed me in Waitsfield when I'm hungry. Right. Uh, Ski areas. How's Sugarbush doing? Positive. I think overall 2023 for the summer and the upcoming fall winter, the expectations are very strong. A lot of people in restaurant hospitality and tourism describe a soft 2022 where they thought the floodgates are open, people are um, coming back, and it, they didn't quite reach those expectations, but 2023 is looking better so far for people. The driving patterns, actually the for Vermont, I think the flight problems sometimes help our tourism industry, because if people hear about difficulty flying to Atlanta and California and Colorado, they say, well, we could just drive <laughs> to Vermont. Yeah. And we're the, I live in the Mad River Valley. We see a lot of drivers in well I, maybe i'm just old but i might be in a canary in this coal mine i mean the the horror stories about flying in this country in a, in a first world country like this the fact that our airline system is so broken um i don't want to go anywhere i, I just i haven't been on a plane since 2019 and that i used to fly probably 20 times a year. Yeah, I so, flew a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to fly, you know, to Washington once a week. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and back. And it was easy. You know, 6.20 a.m., bang, you're there for a 9 o'clock yep. meeting. Uh, that's not, that's not, you can't depend on that even remotely anymore. No. So what does that mean for Vermont? 
Or am I just old? Are, are the young, I, it, are people under 40 flying like crazy? Not that I know. I've heard, I've, I've read some anecdotal things about people doing these sort of strange commutes from like their parents' home in North Carolina so that they could go be an intern in New York City. But yeah. I think those are sort of one-offs. Um, I switched industries during COVID, so I was traveling internationally and domestically a lot in my old role. Now I'm hyper-focused on the region. I don't have to for work, but I'm not choosing to. And I don't – my sisters both work in industries where they would fly a lot, and they haven't um, at all since – the pandemic only electively here and there for team gatherings, not right. for work the way that you used to. Yeah, and I think climate plays a, a little part yep. in it. I think we're all sort of like before we decide to put on a conference with five thousand people and go to all that effort, you kind of ask yourself, do we really want to do this or do we really need to do this? Right. Um, because. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. The future of air travel seems, I don't know, they have to fix it. But I don't know whether you, whether it means we have to make bigger airports or, or better computers. I think for me in my role, it just means I have to make creative, interesting things here in the region so that people can network here. Um, and we think about different ways to do that. I think the old vision was, um, have a cocktail with a group of people at 5 p.m. And now there's a lot of different ways to think about business networking and how you set that up and structure it. Maybe it is all going on a bike ride together through the Mad Bush. Um, they have a bunch of bike trails over there. Maybe that's a better way to network. Maybe it's riding the rail trail together. Maybe it's um, having a meetup outside during the day, having a picnic, that kind of thing, but different ways to network post-pandemic that really get the social and the connection, but we don't have to all fly to an airport hotel somewhere. That seems crazy. (laughs) I mean, right? (laughs) Some of the things that we did before COVID seems absolutely insane right now, right? Right. The idea of Let's all meet at the Marriott. Right. At, at, at the, at the. In Houston. In Houston. For no reason. For just no to reason. all have a drink yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be more purposeful now and more intentional. And Vermont yeah. is a great host for purposeful, intentional gatherings, especially among Vermonters. Do we need, here's a question out of left field. Do we need a large venue, uh, to host big conferences in central Vermont? I, I, we, the Davis Center now exists at UVM, which that can really host large gatherings. But I don't, it doesn't seem to me that we have, nor do we probably need, a big venue to host big gatherings. Since the pandemic ended, I personally have attended some events at the Davis Center, and they've been effective. But it might be me personally or how things are changing. I think small targeted get-togethers can be super useful. The ARPA tour I mentioned where the um, state delegation was going around with me and looking at businesses, that was about a group of 20, and it was so effective. Um, So you can do a lot with smaller groups that's meaningful. So bottom line, before we go, you're basically Central Vermont's biggest cheerleader advocate uh, to the world. Probably correct. Right? Yep. Okay. All right. Well, if you're a business out there and you're looking to come to Vermont or if you're a business that uh, is already here and needs help with 
uh, capital or tax credits or whatever government program or writing a business plan or getting a website, Melissa Bounty is your person. And where can people find you? Our website is www.cvedc.org, Central Vermont Economic Development Corporation. Or just Google, or just yeah. Google it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Okay. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. Uh, I, we're just going to go through a couple of uh, news stories. We take your calls at 244-1777. Email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Um, a 20-year-old uh, young man died uh, drowned in the Bolton Pothole swimming hole this weekend. Oh, my God. Uh, the Bolton Potholes are owned by the Vermont River Conservancy, a really well-thought-of nonprofit, um, which says that six people had previously drowned at the Bolton Potholes. Uh, the young man was from Greenwich, Connecticut. He died Tuesday after becoming caught in the rapids at Bolton Potholes, a notoriously dangerous swimming hole, according to VT Digger. Well, that's a tough one. I just don't know what to say about that. I mean, this happens all the time, and uh, despite signage, and uh, I don't know what you do about it. You can't, you know, we live with risk, and uh, that's just a very, very tough story. Um, and let's go to the fact that nearly a 100 Vermont school districts are now suing uh, Monsanto, which is the giant chemical company that's owned by Bayer, um, the complaint was filed last Thursday in U.S. District Court. A court alleges that Monsanto continued to market and sell products containing toxic PCBs, even though it was aware of the chemicals' dangers. So you're familiar with the Burlington High School, which uh, shut down. The kids all were shipped to the Burlington Mall. Uh, and they are tearing that school down, and the city passed a, a bond uh, pretty overwhelmingly to raise the money to build an entirely new high school um, after the PCB contamination is completely uh, uh, rectified. Um, so it, it's pretty clear that this lawsuit, part of it, uh, the reason for it is money, Um there's no way that the state is going to be able to pay for the remediation of of all these PCBs uh, in in all schools built before we understood anything about PCBs. So PCBs are uh, oh they they were in they were in electric transformers they were uh, installed there by utilities uh, uh, they were and they're in schools. Um, and most schools, um, I'm in VT Digger's story here. Uh, I would say that, well, there we go. The uh, PCB is a class of chemicals present in many building materials, electrical equipment, caulk, paint, and more, manufactured by Monsanto for much of the 20th century until federal officials banned their production in 1979. Chemicals have been linked to a number of health effects and are classified uh, by the EPA as possible uh, probable carcinogens. This is um, so. If your school was built before 1979, it's going to have PCBs in it. And I know this was an issue with the legislature, where uh, 
education officials were very worried about, you know, if we, what are we going to do if we find PCBs in a hundred school buildings in the state? Are we going to have to shut them down and wrap them, uh, and, and put the kids elsewhere uh, in school? Uh, and the, uh, the state doesn't have the money, uh, to do the remediation that's necessary. Burlington did and does with, I would point out, a huge assist from the state. I don't have the, ex- well, here we go. Lawmakers, uh, set aside 32 million for PCB remediation statewide and removal from schools. 16 million of that goes to the Burlington School District, um, to deal with their situation. So that leaves another 16 million for the rest of the state. That's not enough. So hence the lawsuit, uh, going after Monsanto. Uh, we'll see where it goes. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be back with organic farmer Dave Chapman right after this. You're listening to the friendly pioneer, WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. There is a major dispute out there about what it means to be organic when it comes to the food we grow and the food we eat. Should should the organic label apply only to food grown in the soil, or can it include hydroponic products grown in water, such as lettuce and tomatoes? Our next guest is the expert on this issue. Dave Chapman is an organic farmer in East Thetford and the executive director of the Real Organic Project. He's a founding member of Vermont Organic Farmers. He's been an active in he's been active in the movement to keep the soil in organic, and he's proud to be a current member of the policy committee of the Organic Farmers Association. Dave Chapman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Good morning. Uh, okay, you say in one of your uh, bios that I read in preparation for this, that you are active in, quote, the national effort to protect real organic from the confused failures of the USDA. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I got I got drawn into this conversation about, uh, I don't know, eight years ago. And I got drawn in because I realized uh, National Organic Program was uh, apparently confused about what organic meant. And um, at first, I, the, the issue that drew me in was the issue of uh, growing hydroponically and certifying it as organic. But uh, as I got into this and started to attend national meetings, thinking that this was just actually literally just a little bit of confusion, right? Um, I, I discovered that the problem was much bigger than, than just this one issue. Um, and, I, and I discovered it on this issue it wasn't a matter of internal confusion in the National Organic Program. It was more uh, a failure of democracy, I would say, that I discovered that, that the USDA, which this is no shock for people who studied this, but it was a shock, you know, a bit of a shock to me, is really controlled by, by uh, big ag. 
and you know that that's this whole corporate world um, that it's completely aligned with big food, and uh, it does not have our best interest at heart. It was totally self-serving corporations who have a tremendous amount of influence because of the amount of money they have. So I found myself in a much, much bigger conversation than I expected. I really thought we were talking about a simple misinterpretation of the Organic Food Production Act, the law that Senator Leahy uh, amazingly stewarded through Congress. And it's a good law, and it's it's worded very well, and it, it does a great job of uh, summing up the beliefs of the organic movement, which was much, much older than the law. And despite that good language, um, and despite uh, the effort of many, many people for many, many years to uh, keep the National Organic Program on the right track, in fact, they have wandered quite far. And and when you say they've wandered quite far, are you talking about the the bureaucrats within USDA who actually have to implement the law that Senator Leahy helped get passed? Yes. Uh, and I would say that it's not that we have uh, some um, ill-informed or, or uh, particularly uh, venal bureaucrats. I think that it's the whole system conspires to uh, lead us to this conclusion. And, and, and by that, I mean that uh, those bureaucrats are really following the direction of the uh, Secretary of Agriculture and his or her, you know, immediate staff. Right. So the, the decision to certify hydroponic did not come from the National Organic Program. It came from Tom Vilsack's staff. And the reason that they would care about this at all is that they had been lobbied by people with a lot more money than you or me to allow this, and and they did. And the reason that uh, Tom Vilsack will take some of these stands, and I'm not picking on Tom, this is true of all the secretaries of agriculture, is because there are people in Congress on both sides of the aisle who have also been lobbied by those same companies, and they're putting pressure on the Secretary of Agriculture. So it's a it's a difficult you know it's a difficult thing and it's a very serious issue for all Americans whether you care about organic or not we certainly ought to care about democracy and we certainly ought to care about who's running our government and and how our decisions actually made. So Dave let's get down into the details what exactly is the problem is it just the labeling of hydroponic as organic or are there other issues at stake when it comes to the food we grow and eat? I think I, I think it's, it's interesting. It sounds like a fairly obscure issue, the issue of are you going to allow hydroponic? And, and there are plenty of people who are not very well informed about what organic means, and they go, what's the problem? Right. And uh, I, I, I can certainly talk about the problem, but the First of all, the problems with the National Organic Program are not limited to the allowance of hydroponics. uh, A bigger problem, even, is the allowance of confinement livestock uh, rearing to be certified as organic. Ah. Something they're they're commonly called CAFOs. It's an acronym 
a, a U.S. government acronym meaning Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations, CAFO. And um, at this point, the vast majority, by, by the USDA's own admission, the vast majority of certified organic eggs in America are coming from these large chicken factories in, in which a chicken has literally never been outside in its life, um, in her life. And... Um, the, the, it, it's true. Not as it's not. It's not like seventy percent, but it's probably over fifty percent at this point of the of the certified organic milk in in the country is also coming from these large operations. And uh, what happens when you certify a hydroponic blueberry operation or um, a, a CAFO, a large CAFO dairy operation with 10,000 cows, you know, or a, a Herbrook's chicken operation. And I, the last thing I saw in the Washington Post is that one Herbrook's chicken factory was producing 10% of the certified organic eggs in America, one, one operation. And any, any consumer, any eater going into that, that poultry factory would not consider that to be organic, would not think that this is what they wanted to support, would not be willing to pay a premium for that. So it's fraud. It's fraud on, on the taxpayer. It's fraud on the eater. The, the, the USDA never believed in organic. And when it was foisted on them to create a certification program, it's foisted by Congress, which amazingly, amazingly that, that uh, Senator Leahy and others got this passed. Um, they made it clear that they in no way thought that there was anything about organic that was superior to chemical agriculture, but they would begrudgingly accept their role, which was to ensure the integrity and transparency of the certification, meaning it was their role not to promote organic, but it was their role to protect both the organic farmers and the eaters who chose to buy that food from fraud. And uh, that's what they failed to do. They have failed to do that. So, uh, so it's not just. So, as I hear you, it's not just the uh, the hydroponic issue. It's it's as much an issue of size, uh, and 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 the way farms are operated. Um, I mean, you're a you're a, a, a small tomato grower in East Thetford, Vermont, you must have been shocked as on this learning curve of yours to see what's really out there in America in, when you talk about CAFOs and other operations. And yeah, the, I, I, I was, wanted to be I organic. I was from Vermont, you know, and in right. Vermont, organic is working very well. Right. Um, our certification is almost entirely done by Vermont Organic Farmers, which is a group that uh, I was one of the founders of a gazillion years ago. And we, we were organized, we organized ourselves to, to create a standard and a certification. This was before the USDA had any interest in this. And, and we did it, and we did it well, and the USDA came along, and I thought, this is not going to work. And I, I had to say after a while, I was wrong. This is working really well. And I saw organic growing in popularity and the demand being greater and younger farmers coming in. And certification, I looked around, and I, I thought all the certified farms that I could see deserved certification. 
So I thought, I was wrong. This is working well. And then this issue brought me into the rest of the country. Right. And, I, I, and the further I got from Vermont, the worse it got. And, and you know, genuinely. So let me, let me give an example of um, how this might work. I was on a USDA task force to study this very issue. And at first, they only were going to pick people who were hydroponic producers, and there was an outcry. And they said, oh, yeah, okay, well, we're going to put, uh, you know, a small number of soil growers, you know, proponents of soil uh, as, as organic onto this. I was one, I was one of the five uh, soil advocates, and then there were 10 hydroponic producers. And, you know, it was interesting because most of the time we still thought we were talking about basically one um, company in Mexico that had gotten organic certification. They had lobbied you know, the USDA before we ever knew this was an issue, and, and it was working for them. And then the world found out and said, what, what the hell? Yeah. And, and so the USDA said, we'll form a task force, which is always a way of doing nothing for a while. We just kick the can down the road. So right. I was on that task force. And in the last three weeks of that task force, we suddenly discovered, and truly nobody knew about this outside of the company and the USDA, that actually the biggest producer of hydroponic produce that was being certified as organic wasn't this tomato producer. It was Driscoll's. It was the berry producer, which is, you know, Driscoll's has... 70% of the American organic berry market and probably over half of the conventional market. It's a big multi-billion dollar company. And the head of Driscoll's can talk to Tom Vilsack anytime he wants to. And this really nobody knew. And we were all kind of shocked at that there were actually thousands of acres of uh, blueberries being certified for Driscoll's. And it, it's only gotten worse since then. But, but you know, we suddenly realized why we were having a problem because I didn't understand it. I, you know, this, this other company is, is big. It might be $100 million, but it's not, it's not billions of dollars. And I suddenly realized, okay, we're up against a multinational corporation, and right. they have a tremendous amount of influence, and we don't. Okay. So that's why we have a problem, not because of the law, not because – of the National Organic Program, it's just simply a breakdown of democracy. Dave, what when you went on this journey and discovered uh, or the, the politics around the organic label and possibly uh, making it possible that organic products grown hydroponically, sorry, products grown hydroponically in water could be labeled organic, what did you do about that? You started an organization with a bunch of friends, right? I, I did, Kevin. And actually, there was an organization before the Real Organic Project, and it was called Keep the Soil Inorganic. And it was about as grassroots as you could get. We literally had no organization. We had no leadership. We had no membership. It was just uh, this, this sort of, you know, uh, truly grassroots movement of people. And at that point, our goal was to reform the National Organic Program. And we, we started with uh, Davey Miskell and I started a couple of petitions. We didn't know what to do. But when we discovered this was happening, 
we knew that there had been a, a, a recommendation from the National Organic Standards Board. It's an advisory board to the U, USDA's National Organic Program. And uh, all chosen, 15 people chosen by the Secretary of Agriculture to represent you and me. And to represent everybody, to rep- they, they have representatives from industry, they have representatives from the scientific community. So it's this uh, diverse group, often very unknowledgeable about organic, interestingly. So they had made a proposal, they had passed a recommendation in 2010, and it said clearly hydroponic cannot be considered as organic. And that was done at the request of the National Organic Program. It was passed on to them, and then they ignored it, and then they actually started to operate in opposition to it. It's a big deal when this group makes a recommendation. However, in the uh, 10-year period, I think from 2010 to 2020, the USDA did not act on a single recommendation from this group, which is you know, created in order to gu- guide and advise them. And that... So when we saw that this was happening, and again, I had no idea of the, of the depth of the problem at that point, we actually thought they just made a mistake and weren't paying attention. So we, we started a couple petitions, and we, we got, oh, you know, uh, uh, 500 farmers and 1,000 a, a uh, individual citizens to sign the two petitions. One was especially for farmers. And we, we had some fairly prominent voices amongst those signers, um, Michael Pollan and uh, Alice Waters and Dan Barber and Elliot Coleman, people that are, are well-known and highly respected in the community. And so the USDA kind of had to pay attention to this. It was, it was, uh, it was a call-out. And this led to uh, Keep the Soil Organic had a, a number of rallies around the, around the country, we had one right here in Thetford where about 250 people uh, marched uh, behind 26 tractors from my farm to Cedar Circle Farm around the corner. And then we, we got together and we talked and we had a wagon and Senator Leahy spoke and uh, uh, at that point Congressman Peter Wells spoke and Congresswoman Shelley Pingree spoke and a bunch of farmers spoke. And we were saying, you know... Uh, Let's follow the law, you know. Let's have let's have the National Organic Program actually uh, maintain the integrity and the transparency of organic certification. So our goal at that point was reform, and and that went on for about four years, and then there was a big meeting of the National Organic Standards Board in 2017, and there was an attempt to pass a compromise that would allow growing in containers, but would not allow it to be done hydroponically, meaning the plants couldn't derive their nutrition from a liquid feed. And that failed. That that didn't even win a simple majority. And the people who voted against it weren't saying, we don't even want people to grow in containers. They were saying, we want to allow hydroponic. So it was a big moment. It was... Uh, there were tears in the room. Sixty farmers from around the country came and testified at that meeting. And uh, the testimony was eloquent, and it it didn't it didn't change the outcome at all, and that's because we are up against significant industry lobbying, and I just have to say, Kevin, they're better at it than we are. They they have endless resources. If somebody gets tired, they just hire somebody else. 
when we get tired, we go home. Um, when we get worn out, you know, we have other, other lives to lead. This isn't what we do for a living. So uh, we lost that vote, and it was seen as a, as a benchmark by the hydroponic community. It, it, it was not a vote permitting or allowing it, but it was seen as, as a victory by them. And out of the ashes of that defeat came the Real Organic Project. And it was formed by, in Vermont, by uh, 30 farmers who just spontaneously, very, you know, we, we made some phone calls, and 30 farmers came together at the NOFA headquarters and said, what are we going to do? And I don't know, I think six of those farmers had actually gone down to Jacksonville. And, um, and, and it was decided that we would create a new label, that our goal was to actually still claim the, the mantle for real organic farming. And that if we didn't do this, we would end up being totally greenwashed is, is what it looked like. It, we felt we've lost control of the ship. The pirates have taken the ship. And so what are we going to do? And it, it was decided by that group that rather than go home and just shrug and say, well, they took something else, that we would actually stand and fight. And the, the purpose wasn't to fight. The purpose was to educate because we felt that when people, if people could learn what was going on, they would support us. If somebody went to a, a CAFO dairy farm, they'd go, this is not what I want when I buy organic. And then they went to Butterworks, they'd go, this is what I want. This is what I'm willing and happy to pay a premium for. I want better food grown in a better way where the people who are growing it are treated better, where the land is treated better, where the animals are treated better. This is what I want. And that was, that was the beginning five years ago, uh, in the beginning of 2018, of the Real Organic Project. Uh, and, 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 and so, ahead. so Dave, are, what is the status in, in the 60 seconds we have before the break of the hydroponic issue? Is it a done deal or not? Uh, well, nothing's ever a done deal. Right. But is it, is it firmly, completely embraced by the USDA that hydroponic can be organic? Yes. It's, it, it, it is. And the head of the National Organic Program has said a number of times this is a settled issue. And we have said a number of times, well, actually, it isn't a settled issue until we agree it's settled. So uh, without a doubt, the uh, organic brand is very divided. I would say the organic movement is not. The organic movement has great consensus. Okay. Before we get deeper into the Real Organic Project, I wanted to ask you a food desert question around hydroponics. Um for city dwellers, of which I have four children in big cities, who live in food deserts, uh, can you make the argument about hydroponics? And, you know, they don't have the space, obviously, uh, to grow stuff. Uh, they have a farmer's market, but they can't always get there. And I, I can conceive of an argument that supports the use of hydroponic lettuce, tomatoes, etc. in food deserts in cities? It, it's a popular talking point for the corporation. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, they, they like this one. Yeah. They probably would be willing to donate money to help set it up. The truth is hydroponics is not a cheap solution for growing food. It, it has a significant capital cost to get set up. Right. It can be quite profitable, 
once it's set up. But just to say, this this discussion is not is not about food deserts. This discussion is about corporations, and uh, the the scale is mind-boggling. You know, at the moment, the American blueberry market is being destroyed by the Peruvian hydroponic certified as organic production, which a bunch of investment companies went to Peru and said, hey, this could work. You know, the soil's not great, but the climate is, and we'll just make it all hydroponic. And they came in and they set up large, large hydroponic operations, entirely industrial. And, uh, you know, it's, it's completely demolishing the market for the uh, American growers who followed the law went through the three-year transition period. And if you're transitioning from a chemical production to organic, it's not just the three years. It's rough. Those, those plants are essentially junkies dependent on chemical fertilizers. And so they have to go through withdrawal, and, and the whole system has got to readjust itself. So the people who, who made that investment, and and we're talking about, you know, some large acreages and many many small acreages are are being punished to the point of probably going out of business. As one of my blueberry friends said, when you permit something like this, it, you're not you're not building a bigger tent. You're mandating that level of, of production, or you go out of business. So it, it, the the cheap producer is going to set the price for the whole market. I see. So there's nothing, nothing wrong with growing hydroponically if you want to grow hydroponically. If you're in a food desert, you know, maybe it makes sense, although the, the, the urban farmers that I have talked to said that they are not turning to hydroponics. They're turning to reclaiming the soil, you know, and building it up. And, you know, sometimes the soil is quite polluted. So there, there are real problems. But they don't care about organic certification anyway. You know, that's not their issue. Um, they, they've got direct access to the people in their community. They don't need certification in order to reach those people. It's, it's when you're uh, trying to sell to people who don't know you personally and don't walk by your operation every day that certification becomes significant. Okay. What, well, let's get to the, re- the goal of Real Organic. Sure. The goal of Real Organic is to... Um, is to take this country to organic farming, to take the whole country so that organic farming, real organic farming, and I don't mean, I don't mean real organic farming as defined by Dave Chapman. I mean real organic farming is defined by the world, and there's tremendous consensus on what organic means in the organic movement. Um, we are the only country in the world that certifies uh, hydroponics as organic. We are the only country in the world that knowingly certifies a large confinement operation as organic. And we are seeding um, actual, you know, organic farming to, to other names because people go, well, I see what organic is. That's not what I mean. I mean real organic, but how do we, how do we get that? Is it important that we preserve the name organic? I think that there is something important. We fought for this. For so many years, it it didn't it didn't grow into a sixty five billion dollar um, segment of the American food economy overnight. It took it took two generations to do that, and it's very important what real organic is. 
we shouldn't just say, well, we'll walk away from it and start over again, because it actually doesn't matter what we start over. If it, if it becomes popular in the marketplace, it will once again, the pirates will come in and we'll have the same fight on our hands. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't say, well, we don't want it to be popular. We do. We do want this to be how people eat. And I'll add one more thing, Kevin. Sure. I don't think we can afford to say, you know, let's abandon government. There are problems that we face as a society that ultimately can only be addressed on a governmental level. And as, as discouraged as I am by what I've seen up close, I still feel that we can't abandon organic. I also, I mean, I can't abandon government, but I also say that we can't wait for the government to, to get it right because that's going to be a perhaps hopeless conversation. We need to do it ourselves, and that's the purpose of the Real Organic Project. And when you uh, find yourself face-to-face with a politician who has power, what is your ask? What's the first thing that you ask them to do? I ask them to to understand the Organic Food Production Act and to uh, ensure that the USDA is, in fact, following the intention and the language of that law. Got it. That's all. That's enough. If they did that, and, and they won't, I've, I've met with Tom Vilsack, and he said, well, you know, basically rub a lamp. Yeah. I live, I live in a real world, too, and I have to face. You know, I have to face uh, these politicians who have a great deal of power over me. Uh, I noticed that uh, Bernie Sanders is the new chair of the Health, Education, Labor uh, and Pensions Committee in the United States Senate. With the fact that Senator Leahy, the father of this organic standards uh, law has retired, does Bernie Sanders take on added significance for you or or do you go, take your business to other power centers? What, what role does Bernie, or Peter Welch for that matter, play in this discussion? You know, <laughs> one of the things I've learned is that um, this isn't just about individuals. Right. And uh, Senator Leahy, you know, wrote a public letter to Tom Vilsack urging him to call a moratorium on the certification of hydroponics. And so did Bernie and so did Peter. So those people have already stood up and say, you know, please, Secretary of Agriculture, you know, slow this down and let's fix it. And and Vilsack did nothing except allow it to be further accelerated. So uh, just getting a champion isn't going to be enough. Nonetheless, we need to have uh, informed conversations with all of these people, you know, Bernie has been a help. Peter has been a help. Pat has been a help, but it was not enough because uh, the actually the ranking member of the Senate Ag Committee was uh, from Michigan, Debbie Stabenow, and one of her constituents was Herbrooks, uh, a, a huge egg company that that is based in organic certification. So. We have to understand that this isn't a simple partisan issue, and uh, it's it's going to be very complicated. As soon as we get into how government actually works, it's a pretty messy process. I read. I, I go ahead. Uh, I read uh, in one of on your website, I think, or in a in a, a blog post that 
really simply boiled down, in your view, this is about a, a, a contest between corporate farming and organic farming or real farming. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I agree with that. Uh, um, and, and, and the contest, the question is, you know, uh, what are the rules of that contest going to be? And what I would suggest is that the corporate farming only thrives through phenomenal government support. Your money, my money being spent to help destroy the planet. And uh, it's hard to find the government solutions. Uh, Tom Vilsack uh, recently gave away a couple billion dollars for uh, to try and find a new path for agriculture regarding climate. And wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, right? We finally have have uh, the Secretary of Agriculture saying we got to do something about this because we get that the way we've been farming has been very destructive for climate as well as for the environment, for the farmers, for the water, for the air, you know, for our health. All of these things are all tied up into how we grow food and how our food system works. But who did he give the $2 billion to? Well, most of it went to Big Ag. It went to Cargill. It went to Bayer. It went to the Iowa corn growers. So, uh, you know, they've created th – th these people have come in and they're pirates. They act like pirates. They come in and they've now claimed the regenerative title which was regenerative agriculture was basically started by a bunch of good farmers in the Midwest who looked at this mess and said, we can do much better. And they took basically a lot of principles of organic, and then they added a little bit of herbicide to it still, although they're trying to get away from it. However, do we really think that Syngenta and Bayer and Cargill are trying to get away from the use of chemicals? It's inconceivable. That's what they do for a living. Sure. So the fact is, is when they see that uh, there's money to be made, they'll say, yes, that's what we do. We're with them. And what happened with the Real Organic Project is we stood up and said, no, they aren't with us. And I'm waiting for a real regenerative movement to say, no, they're not with us. And I look forward to that day. and I, I will be a, a proud proud supporter of that movement. Dave, I can't uh, let you go without asking you. You came to East Thetford in 1984 and have been growing organic tomatoes in glass greenhouses ever since then. How did you get here and what changes have you seen in all of those years? Uh, well, I, I actually came to Vermont more like 19... Uh, 76, I think. There you go. And uh, so I came to Thetford, to East Thetford, to this land in, in 84. Um, and when I started, uh, we did start growing in a tiny little greenhouse, two of them, the first year. I'd been farming elsewhere on rented land. I was so excited to be able to actually put up a greenhouse because I finally owned something. And uh those first houses were two by four were covered with double plastic. So more like a, a typical hoop house, but, but much more badly designed. I didn't know what I was doing. Right. And slowly they evolved into bigger and fancier and fancier houses. And, and we, 
went from a roadside stand to farmer's market, first farmer's market, and then stand. And eventually we became primarily a wholesale tomato place, and we got into some glass houses. So uh, that's been my, my evolution. And honestly, we we get, became specialists in, in tomatoes because I, I, I had kids, and I wanted to spend more time with my family than uh, the wildlife of a madly diverse roadside stand, uh, multi-vegetable flower grower allowed me. Got it. And and so between 84 and today, you've seen a lot. Uh, let's talk about climate. What is out there? What do you see every day uh, in your operation? How is the climate changing? Well, my operation is more of a contributor to the problem than it is uh, a victim of the changes. Uh, the changes are obvious. We all see them. I, d- I don't think that there's any serious debate about whether climate change is happening. Farmers were actually among the last to, to change their opinions about that as a group. Not, not You can't speak for individuals, but as a group in the country. Farmers were conservative, and it became a political issue instead of a biological issue. Right. Um, and now even farmers are going, we're getting hammered here. This is happening, and it's real. Um, so uh, my guess is that in terms of vegetables, more farmers are going to be moving some of their production into greenhouses just because it's hard in the field now. I mean, right now we just had, whatever, three or four weeks of rain. And that's a lot easier to withstand the various swings of climate in a greenhouse than it is in the field. Right. Uh, I also read in your materials that this is about uh, two lines. This is about a connection to the soil. And then you said in one of your uh, pieces that you can't take this, you say. What do you mean by that? That you can't take this. We're not going to let this. You take this from us. You know, we're, we're, we we are all contending with um, these huge social waves sweeping across the country, and and the uh, uncertainty of climate, of war, of uh, of democracy in, in our times. There are things that were unthinkable. 30 years ago that are now commonly accepted. And certainly, you know, you talk about what do you see on your farm? What I see on my farm is that the people who work with me are much more stressed uh, emotionally uh, than they were 30 years ago. And questions of mental health are now something that we, like like every every group of people, is contending with. And people, people are very insecure and uncertain and anxious and depressed and all, all of that. We, we live in we live in troubled times. So, uh, and our farm is no exception to that. Um, what's next for the Real Organic Project? Uh, it, by the way, realorganicproject.org. There's a lot there: videos, podcasts, blog posts. Uh, I recommend it to everyone. What's next for the project? Well, you know, we just continue to build the community of aware, connected people. And I, I think that the, the things that we stand for 
there's an audience of millions and millions of Americans who would agree with us. And most of them don't even realize what's happening. And they go to the store and they still buy organic, and so do I. And people shouldn't stop doing that. But the point is we often are not getting what we think we're getting, and we have a right to get those things. And if we could get together and be a little organized, then we can change that reality. It, it, it won't be easy. But ultimately, the stores will go where, the, where the, their customers go. I can remember, you know, 15 years ago, all the stores were having a local program. And, I mean, by the stores, I mean the chains. The co-ops were always there. But, but we, we wholesale into a, a lot of chain stores. And all the chain stores were very excited about local. And they'd send out film crews and you know, they'd right. send out models and photographers and to, to promote their campaigns. That's all gone now. And uh, that's not what the stores are interested in. And, um, and so are most of the local production on the store shelves gone because it, it required an effort. And the stores felt it was worth it because it, it excited their customers. So – it's not enough to have um, activist farmers. We need activist eaters who are going to support the farming that they want to see flourish and thrive. And the farmers need to come together in alliance with the eaters. We all need to be activists in this way. I, I got to say that, you know, for years I just farmed and I did it in a way that I felt good about, that I felt you know, I was doing my best. I was growing phenomenal food for people, a lot of people, and I felt good about it. But that wasn't enough. I was I was mistaken. I needed to be a bit more involved in government, in, in the movement, in the organic movement. And it's fine. I did what I had to do. I, I raised my kids just like anybody. I struggled to make the business work. And now I'm a little bit older, and my kids have left home. And in fact, one of them is back now working on the farm. It's wonderful. So, you know, we, we, we can change the world. We do change the world, whether we want to or not, by the choices that we make. And I don't think that this is as simple as saying that, you know, that, that we run the world with our, with our choices. It's not that simple. But I do think that we have a tremendous impact. Right now we have over 1,000 farms across the country that are certified with the Real Organic Project. And, and really what that means is that, if you buy from one of those farms, then you are getting what you think you're getting. That's all. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's not just all. That's enough. That's a, that's a movement. That's what we started with in the first place. When we started Vermont Organic Farmers, there was literally no market for organic in the, in the stores. There was no, you know, it wasn't like anybody was going organic because it was a good economic decision. Dave no Chapman. We got to run. Uh, you're, you're, you're kind to join us. Thank you very much. Uh, Dave Chapman of Real Organic, uh, of, of the Real Organic Project. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. That's the show for today. Uh, I'll be back. Uh, what's today? Wednesday? I'll be back Friday with another edition of Vermont Viewpoint. You're listening to the friendly pioneer WDEV.